This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Hey guys, how are we? Arnaldo here. I'm one of the pastors here at Anchor Church and it's such a privilege uh, to uh, be invited into your homes through this uh, stream, through this medium, as we finish off our Lord's Prayer series. And this week, uh, we're ending it uh, with the final petition. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we've looked at this prayer as something not simply to memorize and recite, not not even just something to use as a paradigm for our prayers, uh, but something that will uh, fuel our, our vision and our whole life, that our uh, not only our prayer closets would be lined with the Lord's Prayer, but our whole lives would be a response to them, would be a living out of them. That it would touch the most profound parts of ourselves, our imaginations, our longings, our desires. Because ultimately this prayer trains us to honor God's reputation above all else, to love God's reputation above all other things. It's a prayer that helps us to remember and live into our identity as children of God, as beloved children of God. It's a prayer that pulls heaven's justice into our homes and workplaces and boardrooms and factories and streets. It's a prayer that asks for the basic necessities of life. It's a prayer that should shape our relationships. It's a prayer that equips us to fight evil, both in ourselves and in the world. And so as we look at the last petition in the Lord's Prayer today, let us pray together and focus our minds and hearts on God and and pray that he would speak to us this morning. Father, uh, we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you uh, for who you are for us in Christ Jesus. Uh, We thank you that uh, Matthew was faithful uh, to record this prayer, uh, to use uh, as a paradigm for us, as fuel for our love and devotion and imagination. Uh, So we thank you for all these things. Lord, help me to forget the things that are not gonna be helpful. Help me to remember the things that will be all for your name's sake. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, like many of you, I've been working from home now uh, for, I don't know, two, three, four months. I've, I've lost count. And uh, because of that, we've had to rearrange some of the furniture in our home. And so we've had to move our dinner table down to the garage and I've set myself up there. And so I've been working out of my garage for a few months now. And I've been happily and just blissfully working along uh, with, with not another thought. And, I, and I, no, I noticed quite a large sort of spider web over above my head, but I didn't think much of it. There was a, a quite a brooding, dark looking spider, uh, but I let it live its best life, right? Because that's the kind of guy I am. And we made a secret pact. You know, I let it live and it let me work. Uh, and we wouldn't come near one another. It would, you know, I, it, would, it wouldn't lay any eggs. I wouldn't lay any, any eggs. And it was a mutually beneficial relationship. The spider survived and I felt like I was uh, you know, honoring God's good creation by not uh, killing the spider. And as long as we kept our distance, we were good. This went on for weeks. A good friend of mine came over and uh, he asked me ab- about this, this spider and, and he goes, do, do, like, do you know what that is? I'm like, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a protector against pests and flies and, and other things. And he says, no, no, do you know what kind of spider that is? And I said, yeah, of course. Uh, uh, how about you tell me and then we'll see if we have the same idea. And he let me know it was probably a funnel web spider. And I said, yeah, uh, like, are, are they dangerous? 
And uh, you see, I grew up in New York City where we don't have, uh, you know, we have other things that may kill us, uh, but definitely not uh, wild animals as it were. And I had no clue. I had no clue that there was something in my garage so close to me that if I were to be bitten and left untreated, I would be dead within an hour. Needless to say, uh, I terminated that relationship that day. And oftentimes I think that applies to our life, that we don't know the danger that we are in. And so we blissfully and ignorantly walk through life, not understanding the danger that we are in because we can be completely clueless. And as we walk as disciples of Jesus, oftentimes we are oblivious to the dangerous realities that we face in the world. That aren't just poisonous spiders hiding in our garages, but is it's the evil one. The evil one personified, evil itself personified. And uh, 1 Peter reminds us that he is like a roaring lion seeking someone who he can devour, 1 Peter 5.8. And we simply cannot fight what we are unaware of. We simply cannot fight what we are unaware of. And this is what I want us to understand today, that there is a real force of evil whose sole mission is to destroy everything that is good in the world, wreak as much havoc, stir up as much hatred, and carry as many bodies and souls into the pit of hell with them. And if you're a part of what Jesus is doing to bring renewal to the world, then best believe the devil is after you. This is the point that there is a real enemy who is bent on your destruction, both body and soul. But there's a real problem in our post postmodern age because we no longer believe we don't we no longer have a functional belief in the existence of a personal being who embodies evil who embodies everything that stands up against the will and the purposes of God in the world we're okay with you know a white witch uh, in in Narnia we're okay with a Lord Voldemort in Harry Potter a Darth Vader in Star Wars a Freddy Krueger in a Nightmare on Elm Street a Thanos in the Avengers a Jacob in Twilight you know we're okay with all of these evil characters as it were and yet it's missed on us that there may be a real villain whose whole purpose of existence is to destroy everything God has made good, especially humanity. But we no longer live in this enchanted world. Uh, we are far too mature. We are far too technologically advanced to believe in such nonsense. With Paul, the, with the Apostle Paul, the architects of our modern world have said, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but now I've put childish ways behind me. I put them away. C.S. Lewis in his absolutely brilliant book, The Screwtape Letters, he records a conversation between uh, this uh, senior devil uh, called uh, a Screwtape with his uh, nephew Wormwood, who's a kind of nephew tempter apprentice as it were. And in the preface to the book, Lewis says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And our cultural moment falls into the camp of the materialist where it's incredibly difficult for us to believe in ghosts and demons and things of that sort. We are from birth discipled to believe that all such beings 
exist only in our nightmares and find their place in our fairy tales and movies and novels. And yet, our text this morning confronts us with the reality that there is a real enemy who is bent on our destruction, both body and soul. And Jesus arms us with words to pray in order to fight this enemy. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now the question is this, the question we need to ask is what is Jesus doing here? What is he uh, actually getting at? When Jesus asks us to pray that, that God would lead us not into temptation, what is he asking for? And all of this hinges on what we mean when we use the word temptation. Is it God who stands behind the rage of our temptations as we understand and experience them? Is it God who tempts us to cheat on our taxes and our spouses? Is it God who tempts us to kill and murder and maim? Is it, is it God who tempts us uh, to take his own holy name in vain? Is it God who tempts us to covet and lust and steal? Is it God who is standing over and behind the curtain like the Wizard of Oz tempting us the whole way through just to see if we would give in to them? And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. In fact, Jesus's half-brother James said this in the book of James, let no one say that when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And so, if God himself never tempts with evil, what is Jesus actually getting at when he asks us to pray, lead us not into temptation? And here, it's very beneficial now to glean from other multiple translations of our English Bibles. See, the word temptation here carries an elasticity, a certain degree of elasticity like virtually all words do, where it can mean slightly different things yet related. Other translations uh, do a, a slightly better job here in translating uh, the word uh, perasmon, which is, which is the word they're used for temptation. And other translations uh, use the word trials. Trials. What Jesus is telling us here is that we are to pray to God to not lead us into trials whereby we would be in danger. Not just physical danger, but danger at the hands of satanic forces and influences that would bring us under their power. Another way to pray this is this, Lord, please don't allow us to enter into trials and tribulations where we may be tempted to sin. And not sin simply as an action in the moral category, but sin as a power. Keep us from coming up under the power and influence of sin. And so in the first part of the petition, uh, Jesus directs, directs us to ask God to, to lead us away from trial and temptation. While in the second part of the petition, Jesus directs us to, uh, he, he asks us to ask for protection from the one who will take full advantage of us as we are going through the trials. Our text reads, but deliver us from evil. But again, I believe uh, other translations uh, do a slightly better job when they translate the word uh, poneru, uh, evil, uh, as a particular evil being, evil one. Protect us from the evil, deliver us from the evil one, as opposed to uh, protect us or deliver us from a generalized evil. Fo follow me here. The word poneru is an adjective, which means this. It's, it describes a noun. It's a descriptor word. But in both Greek and English, Descriptive words can stand in the place of a noun. For instance, for example, when we talk about the rich, 
What we mean is the rich people. Now, rich is simply an adjective, but when we say the rich, it's standing in the place of a noun. And I believe that's what Jesus is doing here. When he says, deliver us from evil, he's saying, deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the embodiment of evil, the father of lies, the devil, Satan, the accuser, the adversary. And Western culture has a place for some kind of lowercase e evil. Evil in general, like, you know, the kind of people who don't return their trolleys at Woolies and Stalin and Pol Pot and, and folks who take too many items through the express aisle and those who wear masks and those who choose not to wear masks. Evil is Republican or, or uh, liberal in our case. Uh, evil is uh, Democrat or uh, a labor in our case. Evil is somehow those other folks on the other side of the tracks. We have a very general idea of evil, but not one that terminates on a single being in the universe. And that puts us in danger. Clinton Arnold, uh, uh, a, a theologian and uh, a commentator, he says this, there is a distinct danger for Western Christians to discount or minimize the reality of supernatural opponents. To do so makes us more vulnerable to their attacks by causing us to be less vigilant, less reliant on prayer, less dependent on God, and less dependent on spiritually gifted fellow believers. See, we believe in some kind of anemic version of lowercase e evil, but Jesus guides us to pray against the person that stands behind all incarnations of evil. And so what does scripture have to say about the evil one? Who is he? How do we relate to him? What is it? Who is it that God is asking us to ask him to be delivered from? Now, the first thing to know is this. That the evil one is a creature. He's not on par with God. In no way, shape, or form is he equal to God the creator. He is a cre- he's part of creation. And so his power is limited. His scope is limited. As powerful as he is, he is not God. And nor does he possess the wisdom and power of God. But make no mistake that he is a real enemy that is bent on your destruction, both body and soul. And throughout the whole scriptures, uh, there are different names or descriptors, uh, descriptive words or titles that is used for the evil one. The first is, uh, one of them is Satan, which is not necessarily a name. Uh, the same way that Christ is not Jesus's last name. Satan is a, uh, a role, which means adversary or accuser. He's also called the devil, which again is not a name, more of a title, which means slanderer. In our text, he's called the evil one. He's also called Beelzebub, which is a name that resembles a pagan Philistine god. Belial, which comes from the Hebrew word for wickedness. He is called a dragon, a symbol for power and destruction. He is called the serpent of old, harking back to the story in the garden where he successfully tempts uh, uh, Adam and Eve and also unsuccessfully tempts Jesus in the wilderness. He's the father of lies. He has been telling lies from the beginning, Jesus tells us. He is the deceiver, continuing to blind unbelievers from the gospel, to the gospel in 2 Corinthians 4. 4. He is also called the prince of demons, meaning he's, he's not on a solo trip here. He has a squad. One with the power of death he is called. He's called the murderer and destroyer. He's called the morning star, disguising himself as an angel of light. And he's also called the prince of the power of the air. He currently has a significant 
rulership over the world even now. And he is hell-bent, literally, on your destruction and everything that God is for, both body and soul. And so there isn't just this, this little spider over our heads, but there's a ferocious beast whose venom is so deadly that to not pr- to protect ourselves would spell absolute demise and damnation. And yet we need to be careful here and to not sensationalize Satan, to not sensationalize the devil, to, to think that he only operates in, in the ways that we've seen on the exorcist or paranormal activities. He's a master of disguise and will take any opportunity to influence us towards his dark purposes through the mundane as much as the sensational. So the question is, how does the evil one operate? And I want to give you eight ways. Uh, he comes to us in a million ways, but eight ways that he comes at us, that the devil comes at us. One is he presents the bait and hides the hook. He presents the bait and hides the hook. Sin appeals. Vices become glittering. But yet within the vices are death. Within the the taking on of that temptation and it unfolding itself as sin and then sin as death, what he does is he hides the poison. Number two, he gets us to dwell on our sin rather than our Savior. And so he he makes us to look at at the ways that we have failed over and over and over again and and, and, uh, tempts us to not look at Jesus who says, you are clean, you are good, you are mine. Number three, he afflicts us with physical illnesses or conditions. We see that in the life of Job as well as in 2 Corinthians 12. He downplays, number four, he downplays little sins compared to big sins. He sin rationalizes. He goes, all right, you can indulge in pornography as long as you don't cheat on your wife. You can, you can rob a little just you know, as long as you're not doing it a lot. And sin rationalizes little sins away uh, because they compare them, you know, he tempts us to compare them to larger sins. Number five, he tempts us to rely on our own works and not on the finished work of Christ. See, before, in some sense, he, he gets us to look at our sin. And then in another sense, he also gets to look at our deeds, our good deeds, and tempts us to trust in them. Additionally, he sends us hor- he can send us horrific dreams or demonic manifestations during the night that produce fear. Number seven, he exploits our sinful tendencies and habits, things that we that may be ingrained in us. He stokes to fire. Eight, he makes us think that we can play with fire without getting burned. Sin tricks us. And so we're, we're tempted to, uh, even as married folks, just go on that, co- you know, just go have a coffee with. It's just a coffee. It's just a hangout. It's just a conversation. It's just me sharing. And so often what can happen to us is that we are tricked into thinking that we can place fire on our laps without getting burned. And now I'm not saying that there's a demon behind every rock and that the devil made me do it. But I think we have overcorrected here and believe now that the devil doesn't at all have influence or at all interact with us. An equally deadly mistake. It's not just that the devil tempts us to sin. J- James says it's our flesh as well. It's, it's the holy untrinity of flesh, the sinful nature and the world, fallen structures and the devil, personal 
evil that lead us into cooperating with the kingdom of darkness rather than the kingdom of God. And it either renders us outside of the kingdom or impotent in the kingdom. And, and Jesus has another way. And you know, it's not just personal evil that Satan uh, sets himself up against us. He, as we look at the landscape of our world, the genocidal regimes, the culture of addiction, terrorism, racist ideology, and system designs, uh, systems designed to oppress, exploitative capitalism and dehumanizing communism, the sex trade, the slave trade, the never-ending lust for profit, the drug trafficking trade, apartheid, it's clear to see that the powers and the principalities, what Paul says, powers and principalities, the evil rulers of this world are at work, not just in personal lives, but in systems and structures. And they are designed to cut us off from God and ourselves. And ultimately, to destroy both body and soul. And so the question for us this morning is what hope is there? What hope is there? In light of the reality that we have a real enemy bent on our destruction, both body and soul, we must respond in the following ways. One is that we, we pray. We begin to pray against the enemy, his works and effects in and around your life. We pray the Lord's prayer. We say, deliver us from the evil one. We pray. But also we outsmart. It's actually possible to outwit the devil. Paul tells us this, forgive so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Other translations of his schemes. There is a real way to know the way that Satan operates in and around our lives. And we can posture ourselves to combat that. A couple resources that you can read. One is, uh, I, I mentioned already, uh, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. Phenomenal. But also this other book by uh, this uh, pure, the 17th century Puritan called uh, Brooks, who wrote uh, a book called uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And th those are some ways that we can uh, learn the ways that Satan comes at us and ways that we can resist him, which is the third way that uh, we, uh, that we have hope. The, the scriptures say in James 4, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He's not just walking back. He's not just uh, kind of saying peace. No, he's fleeing from you as we resist him. And finally, we stand. Again, Paul commands this in the book of Ephesians. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Four times in a couple of verses, Paul tells us to stand. And he talks about these various elements of the armor of God, things that will help us to combat evil, not only in ourselves, but in the world. He says we have truth as our belt. The truth of who God is, the truth of the world, living within, uh, with the grain of reality. We have truth as our belt, it keeps us up. But additionally, we have righteousness or justice as our breastplate. We have the good news of peace as our shoes. We have the gospel, the good news saying that God in Christ reconciled the world to himself. 
that the enmity that was once there is now removed because of what Jesus has done. We have faith as our shield against the flaming arrows of the evil one. We have salvation as our helmet and scripture as our sword. And so even as we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We're called to partner with God. Listen to this. We're called to partner with God in seeing his plans come to bear in our lives and the world. We are no mere bystanders. We are all on the field. But the question is, how is this possible? How is it possible that we could ever do this? How is it possible that we can be delivered from evil, an evil bent on our destruction? And the only reason why we can, why we can get on our knees and plead with God, deliver us from evil, is because there was someone else who got on his knees and asked God, deliver me from evil, and God said no. That in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus prayed, as he sweat blood through his pores from stress, and he prayed, Lord, may this cup pass from me, this cup of wrath that I'm about to swallow as I go to the cross. And Jesus finally says, not my will, but yours. The only way that we can be delivered from evil is because Jesus took evil upon himself. The full weight of it came down upon his own head. He takes evil and the consequences of that evil. He was not delivered from it so that we can. And if you're here today and you don't know this good news for yourself, I plead with you, be reconciled to God, know him as a father, not as a judge. There are many people here who can help you out with that, our pastors and our host team. We would love to pray with you. We would love to pray uh, for you and with you and introduce you into the greatest adventure of your life of living within the kingdom of God, knowing this to be true about you, that you are one in whom Christ delights and dwells. You now live in the kingdom of God. God, the unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble and neither are you. That can be true of you today as we turn to Jesus and we say, I cannot figure this out. I have been living ways that are contrary to reality. I've been living ways contrary to my own flourishing and the flourishing of my community. Help me come into my heart. I receive you now as my Lord as my master, as my friend, as my lover. And if that's you today, we would love for you to reach out and let us know that you made that decision. And we'd love to celebrate with you and see you along this path of discipleship, of apprenticeship to Jesus. We love you guys. Let me pray. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll head into some singing now as well. And uh, communion in your own homes, in your watch parties if you're doing that. Um, and we'll see you again next week. Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. Uh, we thank you that you are holy and good. We thank you that you are pure and beautiful. We thank you that you have come to us. You have come to us through the person and work of Jesus to reconcile us to you. And that in Christ, you, God, 
we're reconciling the whole world to yourself. And we thank you and we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Bless you guys.